Morning. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 12. This is kind of this is titled Samuel's farewell speech. Samuel said to all Israel, I've listened to everything you've said to me and I've set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I'm old and grey and my sons are here with you. I've been your leader from my youth until this day. And here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I've done any of these things, I will make it right. You've not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You've not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people, It's the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. Now then stand here, because I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord, and served the Baals and Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerub, Baal, Barak, Jephthas and Samuel and delivered you from the hand of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now, here's the king you've chosen, the one you've asked for. See, for the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both, of you, and the, if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest now? I'll call on the Lord to send thunder and rain and you will realise what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die, for we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they're useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you and I will teach you the way that is good and right. 
But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he's done for you. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. If you're visiting us today, it's great to have you with us. My name's Carl. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to be spending some time now thinking about those words that Linda read. But before we do that, let's bow and ask God to bless his word to us. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, uh, who has spoken in the past in many ways and in various times through people like uh, the prophet Samuel, Lord, but in these last days you've spoken to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that those words are written down for us in the Bible, uh, that they are made known to us by your Spirit, uh, and we pray that as we reflect on these words now that we've just read, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would enable us to understand, but to know you and to love you, uh, and to respond in faith uh, to, uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray it in his name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever thought about uh, what your final words might be. Uh, Ned Kelly famously said as he was hanged, such is life. Uh, And Oscar Wilde, as he lay dying uh, in jail, said, this wallpaper is killing me. One of us has to go. Uh, But final words are not just for the end of life. Uh, Sometimes when you leave a place or a job or a school or a community group or whatever it might be, sometimes there's an opportunity that comes for you to say something, some final words to share with the people that you spent so much time with. Uh, If you're a school captain or a student representative uh, in your grade, you might have the opportunity at the end of the year perhaps to say something to your fellow students. Whatever the occasion The thing about last words is that they're really important because it's the last thing that you're going to say to those people. And so you want to say the most important thing that you possibly can say to them. If you were to stand up here in front of church this morning uh, for the final time to say farewell to everyone here, what would you say? What would be the most important thing that you could say to the people here? It's an interesting question, I think, to ask and probably reveals as much about uh, us as it does about uh, others. Well, here in 1 Samuel 12, Samuel has that opportunity. He gives his final words as the leader of Israel. The people have asked for a king. God has finally given them the king Saul. We saw that last week. And now Samuel is handing over the reins of leadership to this anointed king Saul. But before he does that, he has a few last things to say. And what Samuel does in his speech is to convict the people of their sin, to to help them to realize the scale of what they've done. Uh, But then he also shows them the way that they are to deal with what they've done as well. So Samuel begins by saying to the people, I've listened to you, basically. You asked for a king, I've given you a king. I've listened to you, now you listen to me. Uh, Even though uh, he'd done what they'd asked for, uh, he says, I've done 
the whole time I've been leading you, I've, I've done exactly what you wanted me to do. I've never done anything against you. He asks them, in fact, to confirm that he's done that. He asks them to confirm his innocence. Uh, and they say, they, they agree, they say, you're innocent, you've led us well, basically. And Samuel even calls God as a witness that he's innocent in the way that he's led the people. You might think to yourself, why is Samuel bringing all this up? You know, why is he kind of defending himself before he gets into all the other things that he wants to say? It's because there's an implicit kind of criticism in their acknowledgement that Samuel has not done anything wrong. Samuel is basically asking them to acknowledge that he's led them well. But if he's led them well, then why have they asked for a king? And what was implicit there in that initial kind of section, Samuel goes on to make explicit. He says, uh, as he moves on, okay then, basically, now let me convict you, not just of those things, but of all the righteous things that God has done for you. First of all, he, uh, well, he goes on then to, to recount the kind of a quick version of Israel's history. And he begins by reminding them how God raised up Moses and Aaron. When the people were enslaved in Egypt, they cried out to God for help and he raised up leaders. He raised up Moses and Aaron who brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery under Pharaoh, uh, under Pharaoh's brutal rule. Uh, through Moses and Aaron, God brought them out not only of Egypt, but he brought them into the promised land uh, where they were living. But not long after that, after they'd conquered the land under Joshua, they forgot about God, Samuel says, and God, they turned away from God and God turned away from them. He sold them into the hands of a foreign power, into the hands of Sisera. They were again treated brutally and God gave them over to others as well, like the Philistines and the Moabites, other kind of regional powers. But again, they cried out to God for help. They acknowledged their sin, they admitted that they'd left God behind and they'd given themselves over to other gods uh, to satisfy them, uh, to find satisfaction in the life and to uh, bring them protection. But now they acknowledge their sin, they've acknowledged their sin under the time of the judges, they recommitted themselves to God and God delivered them. He raised up judges, uh, men like Gideon, Barak, Jephthah and, and even Samuel himself. Samuel was the last of the judges among the people of Israel. So there's this history of the people being oppressed, uh, the people turning away from God and being oppressed, the people crying out to God, returning to God, and God sending deliverance and rescue. But Samuel says, and yet, even though that's all that God has done in the history of his people, and yet when you saw Nahash the Ammonite coming against you, you panicked. Instead of turning back to God and humbling yourself before God and seeking God's deliverance again, as he'd always done in the past, he'd always provided in the past, instead of doing that, you came up with your own plan. And you said, God, we need a king. Even though God had always been faithful, even though God had always delivered them, this time they needed something other than God. They thought that they needed a new king, they failed to realize that God was exactly the king that they needed. 
and to help them recognize the enormity, the scale of their problem, God says that he's going to send a storm to destroy the crops just as the harvest is about to begin. They're just about to go out and, and, and bring in the harvest and God sends this judgment through Samuel so that they would realize what they'd done. They thought that they needed a king to save them, but the king that they had, God, is the God who controls the weather. Not some piddly little human king who rides out with people on horses, with swords and spears. The God, the king that they had, was a king who controls the universe. And when the people are confronted by what Samuel says to them, confronted by what they've done, confronted by the storm that God sends, they're convicted of their sin, they're convicted of what they've done, they cry out to Samuel in verse 19, they say, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die, for we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die. The people have finally got the point. It seems that they are only now just beginning to understand what they did all that time ago in asking for a king. It turns out that they've, that they've rejected God. And it turns out that the core issue in their life is actually rejecting God. The core issue in their life is sin. And what they needed to do was to deal with their sins. They say to Samuel, we've added to all our other sins, this sin of asking for a king. It wasn't that they were doing really well. And then all of a sudden, they asked for a king and things went pear-shaped. But it turns out that the issue was sin all along. There was a bedrock of sin in their lives, in the nation, among the people of God that needed to be dealt with. But they thought to themselves, no, what we need is a king. What we need is something new and something better that will really help us to make inroads and provide ourselves some security among these nations. What an easy mistake that is to make. We do it all the time, don't we? We think that we need a new strategy or a new plan, a new scheme, a new hobby, a new activity, a new job, a new situation in life, a new friendship, a new relationship. Uh, you might think you need more money or more time or more energy or something more exciting, more engaging to do. But maybe actually what you need to do is not find something new and better, a new scheme or a new strategy. Maybe what you need to do is to deal with the sin in your life. Maybe that's the issue. Maybe that's the issue in your life. Maybe that's the issue in the church's life. Maybe that's what we need to do as a church. Not find a new scheme or a new strategy or a new, uh, new plan, but to deal with our sin. You may or may not be aware, but in the last few years, there's been more and more sad stories of Christian leaders failing terribly. Uh, one well-known pastor who 
ran a mega church in the United States, was deposed from his leadership position for bullying. Another well-known evangelist in the last year uh, turned out to be a sexual predator uh, who had mistresses in other countries. A well-known figure in British evangelicalism, a couple, in fact, for different reasons, but one well-known figure in British evangelicalism has been exposed in the last year for beating men he discipled and engaging in naked massages. These are not, uh, these are not people in far-off parts of the Christian community, but really people in the parts of the Christian world that we would probably identify with. They're our people. And then there are pastors burning out in churches at a rate of knots. The number of people abandoning pastoral ministry in Australia is frightening. Others are retiring and there's nowhere near enough people to replace them. We're already beginning to, in churches across Australia, feel the effects of that. There are churches that are struggling to find pastors. There are no pastors to call and to install, install into their churches. Within the next decade, there will be an enormous shortage of people in ministry. Something like 50% of churches, it's estimated, in numerous denominations, will be basically without pastors. And if you speak to people and you look on the internet, everyone has their theory, you know, all the Christian writers have their great theories about what it is that we need to do to solve the problems in the Christian world. But you know what, maybe we don't need a new strategy. Maybe we just need to get on our knees and return to God. Maybe our Western and Australian Christianity, our Western and Australian evangelicalism, maybe it's actually moribund and corrupt. Maybe our team is not in such a good place. Maybe we've grown complacent and indolent. Maybe we've been more shaped by the world around us than by the Bible. And maybe... Just maybe we need to get on our knees and to acknowledge our worldliness and to seek God's forgiveness. Maybe the way forward is not a new scheme, but an old scheme. The old scheme of repentance and faith. Last school holidays, we held a church-wide prayer meeting. And I think we had about 20 people. I was relatively encouraged by those numbers. But one of the people in my growth group who has the habit of saying things that nobody else is willing to say said upon reflection, that's pathetic. Is there only 20 people in the church who are interested in praying together for each other and for the world and pleading with our God to empower us for mission in the place where he's put us? Are there only 20 people? It's not as though it's a heavy burden. One prayer meeting four times a year, an hour and a half. Yes, life is busy, isn't it? But we have a choice. 
we all have a choice to make over what we will let dominate our lives. Will our lives be dominated by all the things that won't last into eternity? Kids' sport, work, home renovations, me time, whatever it is. Will we let our lives be dominated by those things? Or will we let our lives be dominated by the pursuit of God's kingdom and his glory, whatever the cost? How many more jolts from God do we need? How many more storms do we need in our world before we wake up and get on our knees before God? Another pandemic? Another leader in moral failure? And we can't just say that it hasn't affected us, we're not part of the problem because it's all happened out there. But we're all shaped by the world around us. All of us are shaped by it. Like everyone around us, we're more driven by our own ideas of who we are and what we want to do and the dreams that we want to pursue than we are driven by our absolute and complete allegiance to Jesus Christ, the King on the throne. The biggest problem that the church faces, in our church and every church, the church across the world, the biggest church that we face is not the lack of right programs or the right people to staff them. The biggest problem that we face is sin. And yet, astonishingly, it's the one problem that we never mention. It's the one thing that we never confront. We don't need a new scheme. We need to return to God. I don't know what that will mean in its entirety, but I know one thing. I know that, first of all, we need to admit it, and then we need to get on our knees and confess it to God and cry out, not just on our own, but cry out together for God to change our hearts, to forgive us and to reorient us to things more glorious, more wonderful than the small things that captivate our imaginations and our lives in the here and now. We need to get deadly serious about living lives that are single-mindedly focused on the glory of God and the kingship of Jesus. Well, that's the hard message that Samuel had for the people. And that's the hard message I think that God has for us as well. But how do we respond to that? How do we deal with that? Well, Samuel tells the people and he tells us, How we respond. God puts before us and before the people two things. He gives both a promise and a warning. The first thing is the promise. Uh, What God says to do is, he says, don't be afraid and don't turn away from him. Verse 20, do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You've done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Samuel doesn't pretend that what they'd done wasn't all that bad. He doesn't say, look, you know, it could happen to anyone. Uh, anyone could be in that situation. It's stressful. The nations are coming against you. Don't get too worked up about it. He says, you've done this evil. It's as bad as you think it is. He doesn't sugarcoat their sin. But then he says, yet, you've done all this evil, yet, do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Samuel says, don't be afraid. 
fear seems like the most sensible option, doesn't it? You know, when you've sinned against the God of heaven and earth, the God who sustains us and upholds the universe, who gives us the very air that we breathe, fear seems like an appropriate response, doesn't it? When you've, when you've sinned against that God. But Samuel says, don't be afraid. Fear is the last response that you should have. And that's because although God is holy and pure and set apart from sinners, although he punishes sin, God is also gracious and merciful to those who humble themselves before him. He's so gracious and merciful that when we turn to him in repentance and faith, he forgives us. The people say to Samuel in verse 19, Samuel, you've got to pray for us. We're done for. You've got to help us out. And Samuel says, well, you know what? Far be it from me that I should sin by failing to pray for you. But do you know, it's not my prayers that will rescue you. Samuel anchors their confidence, their reason for not being afraid in the character of God. He says in verse 22, For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. For the sake of his great name, God will do it. The people had every reason not to be afraid, Samuel says, because God wouldn't abandon them for his own sake. And that's the great foundation and the great hope uh, where our freedom from fear comes from. It's God's sake and God's glory. It was for God's own name's sake, for his glory, that he sent Jesus into our world. It was for his glory that Jesus hung on the cross. It was for his glory and for his sake that he did those things. And if that's true, then those things become an absolutely immovable foundation for our hope and our salvation because it depends on what God is determined to do for himself. We're not even in the equation. The ups and downs of our lives, of our performance, we're doing okay one day, not so good the other day, all those things are taken out of the equation because God doesn't do it for our sake, because we've earned it, because we've, we, 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 we ought to be rewarded. He does it for his own name's sake. Don't be afraid. God will save you, not for your sake, but for his own glory. But then Samuel says, not only don't be afraid, he says, don't turn away. Linking fear with turning away from God might seem strange at first. You would think that if you were afraid of God, that perhaps the first thing that you would do is kind of draw towards him more and more. But Samuel, I think, knows the human heart. And often, it seems, that fear is one of the things that drives us further and further away from God. The wrong fear. There's a kind of a good fear and reverence and respect in the Bible, but, but, uh, but Samuel here is talking about that wrong kind of fear. Uh, if we fear God... The danger is, fear God wrongly, are afraid of God. The danger is that we'll abandon God. We'll abandon God because, well, we think there's no hope. 
What's the point of going on serving God if I'm lost? Or you might turn away from God because you think he won't receive me back. Samuel says in verse 21, do not turn away after useless idols. Don't look to other things. Don't let your fear drive you to look for other things other than God. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. If we're afraid of God and fail to trust in his love and his grace in Jesus, then we'll abandon God, either because we're afraid he won't have us back or because we'll look to other things to try and do what only Jesus can do. Over the years, I've spoken with lots of men, particularly young men, uh, about uh, men who struggled with pornography. Uh, and it's a problem, isn't it, that is everywhere. The statistics are just un- unbelievably distressing about the prevalence of pornography in the world. Uh, and it's an, it's an issue, increasingly, it seems, that it affects not only men, but also uh, young women as well, uh, and, and women of all ages. But it's a sin that seems to be very, very depressing and discouraging for those people who battle with it. And when I speak to people who struggle with those things, I often find myself saying things very similar to what Samuel says here. Yes, what you've done is evil. God hates it. But if you confess it to God, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to afflict yourself. You don't need to make yourself miserable for the next week or month or year. You can confess it and not be afraid and indeed be full of joy knowing that Christ has paid the penalty for those things on the cross. You cannot be afraid... And then get on with serving God with all your heart. If you stumble again tomorrow, you can do the same thing all over again. And that, that is true whatever the sin is that we struggle with. Whether it's pornography or whether it's anger. Or whether it's greed or overeating or overbuying or overindulging or laziness or lying or resentment or bitterness or unforgiveness or selfishness or anxiety, whatever the sin is, we don't need to be afraid. We can confess it to God and then get on with serving the Lord with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Yes, those things are evil, but we don't need to be afraid. We can keep serving God with all our heart. Well, Samuel says we don't need a new strategy. We need to return to God We acknowledge the evil of our sin. We don't need to be afraid. We humbly come before God. That's the promise side. Then there's the flip side, finally, that Samuel gives as well. And that is the warning. Samuel says to the people, he says to us, don't be afraid, but serve God with all your heart. Trust him. Uh, But if you don't do that, he says, if you don't serve God with all your heart, if you persist in evil then know that the result will be destruction. There's the positive side, but you've got to know what the consequences of not serving God 
are. The consequences of ongoing evil is destruction. Look at verse 24. Be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your son will perish. God says we need to serve him faithfully. The alternative is doing evil. And the result of that is judgment and death. God is not asking for perfection. We know that because Samuel has just dealt with the sin of the people. He said, don't be afraid. If you sin, don't be afraid. He's not asking for perfection. But he is asking for genuine repentance and the genuine desire to follow him as king, to follow God as king. He's calling us to genuinely turn away from sin and to genuinely seek after doing the will of God. If we don't, if we persist in evil, God says the result is judgment, maybe in this life, but definitely in the life to come. If you persist in evil, God is saying to you this morning, you will perish. You can't embrace sin and think that it's okay. You can't just keep going and ignoring it as an issue and think that God won't notice. You think, well, you know what? I'm turning up to church, I'm doing my, my daily Bible reading, I'm praying in the morning, I pray twice a day. God won't mind if I just hang on to this little bit of sin in my life. He won't, he won't notice that. Samuel says, if you persist in doing evil, you will perish. You can't keep stealing from your employer, whether it's food or hours or sick leave you can't keep lying you can't keep giving your heart to things other than god you can't forsake god for the gods of comfort and ease and pleasure you can't make up your own rules about sexual relationships and what's okay and what's not you can't sleep with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and expect that god won't notice or won't care you can't embrace a kind of alternative sexual identity that's homosexuality or another gender. You can't embrace those things and expect that God won't mind. If you persist in evil, you will perish. There's a way back. Samuel says, don't be afraid. God stands there with his arms open wide for you to turn around. There's a way back. But you've got to take the path. You've got to receive the invitation that God gives. Maybe that's a message that you need to hear today. I don't know where you're at. And you uh, may not even know where you're at yourself. But even if you have the smallest inkling that things are not okay with God... then don't be afraid but turn back to him and serve him with all your heart. Cut out the sin, whatever it is, humble yourself before God's mighty hand. It's not worth it, whatever it is. If you persist in evil, you will perish. But don't be afraid if you keep serving the Lord. Let's pray.
Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which challenges us and uh, convicts us. And Lord, we pray that your words would rightly convict us of the things that we need to confront. Lord, whether that's complacency or indifference or laziness, uh, Lord, whether it's worldliness, uh, whether it's the priorities of our own hearts rather than your priorities, whether it's the love of ourselves rather than the love of you and the love of others. Lord, whatever those sins are in our life, we ask that you would expose them, however painful and difficult that might be. And Lord, that we would be willing to acknowledge them and not keep looking for different strategies, but to go back to that old strategy of repentance and faith in Christ. Lord, thank you that we don't need to be afraid, but that we can be completely honest with where we've been and where we are, and to know that you're willing to forgive us in Christ, whose blood cleanses us from every sin. Uh, and Lord, we pray that uh, as we repent and as we turn to you, that you would fill us again uh, by your Spirit uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we might serve you faithfully with all our heart. Lord, if there's any here who are persisting in evil, keep them from that, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.